This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, Australia to send humanitarian aid to earthquake-devastated Syria and Turkey, where thousands are dead and many more are still missing under rubble. Also, the Turkish diaspora come together in grief, trying to contact loved ones back home in the quake zone. This is my home, but that's also my home, you know, and the Turkish people, they help. And I hope to God that everybody else around them, they come in and they do the same thing. All those people are suffering and there is still a lot of loved ones on the bricks, under the buildings. They just, they need help. And borrowers furious about the Reserve Bank's ninth interest rate hike with further rises flagged to try to stop surging prices. Clear disappointment and frustration. Um, I would have thought that an organisation with the financial capacity and intelligence of the Reserve Bank had more in their arsenal. I find it heartbreaking. Thanks for your company. In Turkey and Syria, rescuers are continuing the desperate search for survivors after yesterday's earthquakes, which seismologists now say included the most powerful tremor recorded worldwide since August 2021. At least 3,000 people have been killed in Turkey, and the toll is now more than 1,400 in Syria. Dozens of nations, including Australia, are scrambling to send rescue teams and humanitarian aid to the region. But the United Nations is particularly concerned about the challenges of getting help to people in war-ravaged Syria. Samantha Donovan prepared this report and a warning, you may find some of the details distressing. In Turkey, the search for survivors and the dead buried under the rubble of collapsed buildings is continuing. Some people spent the dark, freezing night outdoors in front of bonfires. This woman in the border province of Hatay huddled with her children. She says her 17-year-old niece has been killed and her sister-in-law's three children are stranded under the rubble. She begs people to pray for them and says with the aftershock she doesn't know what's going to happen next. In Syria, the quake has killed more than 1,400 people and left millions needing help. In the rebel-held town of Azaz in the country's northwest, families are sheltering at a sports centre. Waleed Otman is a volunteer there. Honestly, the situation is very disastrous. It needs the United Nations and international organisations that are specialised in rescuing because the situation is very harsh and people are still under the rubble from yesterday. There are some 400 victims expected and the number could increase, let alone the families who went to the unknown with no shelter in this cold weather. We are trying to provide for people as much as we can, but we need the efforts of everyone to make sure families are at least in a safe and warm place. The United Nations says even before the earthquake, about 70% of the Syrian population needed humanitarian aid. Many of those people were already living in camps after losing their homes in the 12 years of conflict. The UN is concerned damage to roads, fuel shortages and the harsh winter conditions will make it harder to get aid to Syrians who so desperately need help. El Mustafa Ben Lamli is the UN's resident coordinator 
based in Damascus. We have to be creative in how to get to the people and how to get to them the, the assistance, but we are working hard. Those people already needed assistance, and now they will need more of that assistance, and the, the, the crisis keeps deepening. Australia is providing an initial $10 million in humanitarian aid to the region through the Red Cross, the Red Crescent and other humanitarian agencies. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Can I uh, extend Australia's deepest sympathies and condolences to the families and communities that have lost loved ones? We have seen thousands of deaths and tens of thousands of injuries through this tragedy. These multiple earthquakes that have hit the region are having a devastating impact. All of the world's thoughts and condolences are with the people in this region who are suffering at this time. Turkey's ambassador to Australia, Ufuk Gerzav, says the country needs medical equipment and rescue teams. We need uh, medium and heavy rescue teams in order to lift uh, the heavy rubble and bring in, uh, you know, expertise. Um, you know, there are special dogs uh, looking for uh, people under the rubble, etc. And uh, thankfully, um, a lot of countries have responded positively to our call. That's Turkey's ambassador to Australia, Ufuk Gerzav, Samantha Donovan reporting. The Australian-Turkish community is grappling with the scale of this disaster. Locals in Auburn in Sydney's west are trying to make contact with their loved ones still in Turkey. Rachel Hayter spoke to some of them. Prayers from Sydney's Turkish heartland for their homeland. Muslims bow beneath the patterned dome of Auburn's Gallipoli Mosque. Today's rituals full of sorrow. Our brothers and sisters who are waiting to be rescued under the rebels, assist the rescue workers. Nearby at the Alibaba kebab shop, Arif Balabanel is distracted by the tragedy. My mind's not on the job, you know, like uh, customers tell me to do something and I can't even do that right at the moment. My mind is sort of at, at Turkey at the moment. Would you like any sauce, chili, garlic, barbecue, hummus? Local Turkish television plays overhead. Between serving, Arif checks his phone for updates from Turkey. They're still getting shakes. We, we ring every couple of hours and they're still getting shakes, you know what I mean? But by the time I came from home to here, they had about another two or three shakes. Around the corner at a Turkish cafe, Gulay Karcha is remembering her own survival more than two decades ago. To be honest, I'm really shocked and, and extremely upset because uh, I was in Turkey in uh, the end of 99 in the last major massive earthquake and I've been told that this one is worse. She can't stop thinking about the people stuck beneath the rubble. Besides not being able to get any food or water or air, you know, imagine the temperatures. Like, you just can't imagine that. It's not just cold like our winter, it snows. So, you know, metres of snow, you know, and, and the trucks can't get there. Like, the aid can't get there easily as well. Like, roads are destroyed. Cafe worker Oslam feels guilty she's not in Turkey. I can't stop my tears. I feel useless. I feel useless. I'm so, so far away from my family, from my friends, from my relatives. I feel so, so useless. 
Her cousin's home was destroyed. My cousin is in Marash uh, and her building collapsed unfortunately, but they saved my cousin and her family too. Uh, at the moment my cousin's uh, child cannot speak because he was terrified. At the Turkish grocery store Ajum Market, Yashim's customers have been relaying stories of devastation. Some families uh, are apparently so scared that they're staying in their cars and it's really cold, they can't get food. They really, really need help. We're very sad, we're very sorry. Ahmad is the local barber. His wife's family is from Adana. All the family was sitting down, gathering and um, eating their lunch. Then the earthquake happened and they rushed it. They went outside in the street and um, the building next door just collapsed and a lot of people was um, underneath. All those people are suffering and there is still a lot of loved ones on the bricks, under the buildings. They just, they need help. Rachel Hayter reporting there. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, we look at the latest move on interest rates from the Reserve Bank and also the other side of the housing story. As rents, as well as food and energy costs soar, many tenants are racking up debt. There's overwhelm and despair, panic, um, just this continual feeling of dread that this is my life now and, and for always. The highly charged debate over the policy of the offshore processing of refugees has burst back into the political arena. It turns out the law that designates Nauru as a regional processing centre expired last October, leaving the government with little option today but to rush through a legislative instrument without debate to cement the policy into the future. It led to criticism from all sides, including from one of the nation's most high-profile refugees, as Matt Doran reports from Parliament House. Beirut's Bachani spent six years locked away in an offshore processing centre on Manus Island. And today he had a simple message for the architects of his detention as he arrived in Parliament House. For Mr Peter Dutton, I should mention that he said that I never ever come to Australia and I really like to say that he never ever become the Prime Minister of Australia. The Kurdish refugee advocate joining calls from the Greens for a Royal Commission into Australia's immigration detention system. I think people of Australia have this right to know that what the government, and of course I'm talking about both political parties, what they have done in offshore and in onshore. 40 people have been killed in Manus Island and Nauru. Hundreds of people have been damaged. In politics, timing is everything, making Beirut Bachani's appearance on Capitol Hill all the more fascinating. Across the other side of the building, the federal government was madly trying to stitch up a hole it let open in Australia's border protection regime. We have two time-sensitive issues uh, that we have to deal with. Leader of the House Tony Burke rushing two motions into the House of Representatives, one dealing with superannuation and the other redesignating Nauru as a regional processing country. Country, something which lapsed late last year. If we were to have uh, a long debate, which uh, I appreciate on the nature of the issues, many members would like to be able to, to, to speak on it, uh, but there are real-life consequences if we're not able to deal with these issues today. The crossbench clamouring for due process to be followed. This is something that has been sprung on the parliament today. 
Independent MP Zoe Daniel among those to complain. This is not the way this parliament should operate. The Nauru issue, to my mind, is controversial, given, much as the government might think it's standard, how much we spend on offshore detention. Fellow independent Monique Ryan echoing those sentiments. Bundling up this bill on Nauru with a bill on superannuation, which also has implications with respect to transparency, is egregious and perverse. But the government doesn't need them to get the motion over the line, given the coalition's support for strict border policies. The opposition certainly accepts the proposition that there is absolutely a degree of urgency. The manager of opposition business is Paul Fletcher. Let's be clear why there is urgency, because this government has absolutely and hopelessly dropped the ball on a matter which is of uh, importance, considerable importance, to our national security. Independent MP Helen Haynes connecting uncomfortable dots for the government. When Baruz Bachani has just been in this Parliament House historically speaking to us about offshore detention. I, I find this an excruciating and exquisite irony, actually. For Beirut's Bachani, the parliamentary wrangling means just one thing. That shows that Australia has not got a lesson from that's refugee Baruz Bachani, Matt Doran reporting. Well, independent MP Andrew Wilkie has long called for an end to offshore processing and has attempted several times to bring in a private member's bill to abolish the policy. He spoke to us earlier. Andrew Wilkie, thanks for your time. What are your concerns with the government's move to ensure offshore processing in Nauru continues? Well, I'm sure I speak for many Australians when I say uh, I was shocked to learn today that the government intends to uh, pass legislation to continue Nauru as an offshore processing centre for another decade. Uh, surely this was the opportunity for Nauru to be shut down completely. Uh, now, the government would say it kind of is shut down, that it's an open camp, but it's, a, you know, to my mind, a, a, you know, a prisoner island in the middle of nowhere. Uh, this was the opportunity for the government to shut it down for good, and uh, they're not going to do that. And that's really, really disappointing. You know, let's the not Prime forget. Minister had said during the election campaign, though, that offshore processing would remain part of his policy should he win government. Uh, yeah, and, and I would remind Anthony Albanese that offshore processing uh, is immoral. I mean, we have a, a moral responsibility that when someone approaches our shores and claims to be fleeing persecution or fleeing for their life, we have a moral obligation to take them in, to give them protection, to hear their claims and to give them permanent refuge if their claims are accurate. And I'd also remind Anthony Albanese that we have um, legal obligations under international law. I mean, for a start, it is a crime against humanity under the Rome Statute to forcibly transfer someone to a third country and to keep them indefinitely in detention. Uh, I mean, that, that's, the, that's the raw truth of this. Um, and for the federal government today to be ramming through the parliament legislation to extend Nauru as a offshore processing centre for another decade is uh, it's unconscionable. It certainly is immoral and illegal. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights is amongst those who has called it inhumane, contrary to human rights obligations and the like. But isn't the ugly truth that in several iterations, the policy of offshore processing has worked along with other elements like turnbacks in deterring boat arrivals. So, so would you be at ease with the arrival of more boats 
if offshore processing was to end. But the, but the point is, this isn't the only way to ensure that people smugglers are put out of business and that we don't have people dying at sea. But it How is effective. Uh, yeah, well, there's any number of ways you can stop boats uh, and, and many of them are, uh, you know, beyond the pale. Uh, it's not a case of victory at any cost. We're, you know, it's victory in ways that are consistent uh, with, our, uh, with our very humanity and to forcibly transfer someone to a third country, you know, this hot little speck in the middle of the Pacific near the equator, to be to be kept there on a prison island indefinitely, that is unconscionable conduct. I have repeatedly moved a private member's bill in the uh, House of Representatives that would set up a genuine regional response to asylum seekers that would be consistent with international law and overseen by the UNHCR. Uh, where uh, participant countries would have reception centres where asylum seekers could go and be safe and have food and shelter and medical attention and legal representation and then a, an orderly process of hearing their, their stories, processing their claims and resettling them in, in countries that are part of this regional response. But you know what? Um, every time I've moved that private member's bill, it has received no support from whoever's been in the government and whoever's been in opposition. Just on pokies, the Perrottet government in New South Wales is moving to install cashless gaming. You've seen up close how hard it is to bring in pokies reform. Do you see this, though, as a pivotal moment for the nation in, in this space? Oh, this is this is a stunning turn of events that uh, Dominic Perrottet and his cabinet now have agreed to implement a cashless card-based pre-commitment system on all New South Wales poker machines. And if Dominic Perrottet can implement this, or if Chris Minns wins the election and, and was to change his mind and implement it, that would be a watershed watershed moment for the whole country. Now, I think it then would be just a matter of time before the dominoes fall and uh, the other big states, uh, Queensland and Victoria, would, would, would fall into line. And, and you know what? In doing so, we would greatly reduce gambling addiction in this country because of the pre-commitment limits, and we would greatly reduce money laundering because it would be a cashless, card-based system. Do you think the Prime Minister has a responsibility to seize this opportunity to impose some sort of federal reform, or should it be left to those states you mentioned? Well, I put the question to the Prime Minister in question time today. I said, you know, will you seize the moment? Because this is a watershed moment. Will you seize it? Will you take a lead? And will you will you drive reform at the national level? And regrettably, but uh, not unexpectedly, he batted it away and said, well, poker machines are the, are the responsibility of the state and territory governments. And sure, historically, they have been the responsibility of the state and territory governments. But that's not to say the feds can't, for the first time, intervene effectively. I mean, if I was uh, if I was Anthony Albanese, I'd get all the premiers into the into you know my conference room, and I'd say, right, um, either you all agree to do something meaningful together, or the federal government will uh, will intervene. We almost had that occur, of course, a decade ago when I had an agreement with Julia Gillard for a national uh, card based pre commitment system, but. Uh, at the uh, at the eleventh hour, Labor went weak at the knees and and pulled out of the agreement with me. Uh, so good on Dominic Perrottet. Of course, this is a real character test now for uh, Chris Minns, the opposition leader. And I, and I say to to the New South Wales Labor leader, you know, this is important. This should be above politics. Get on board or get out of the way. And and if Chris Minns won't get on board, then I you know I think he fails a pretty fundamental test of character. Andrew Wilkie, thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. That's Independent MP Andrew Wilkie. 
The latest interest rate hike has sparked a furious response from homeowners now bracing for another rise in their mortgage repayments. The Reserve Bank has raised interest rates for the ninth time in a row to 3.35%, the highest cash rate in more than a decade. Many homeowners are now paying hundreds more in monthly repayments, but economists argue there's not many other options to bring inflation down. Stephanie Smale reports. Brisbane homeowner Alyssa describes today's interest rate hike as heartbreaking, questioning why borrowers are having to foot the bill yet again. I think there's got to be other ways than than constantly hitting your your average mum, dad, brother, sister, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever it is. The latest interest rate hike means homeowners who have a mortgage of about half a million dollars are paying over $12,000 more a year than when the rate hike started. Alyssa says her family has had to overhaul the way they live to cover costs. So 50% of our home loan is on a fixed rate. The other 50% of the home loan is a variable rate. What has changed over the course of these rate hikes for your family? So we've signed up to... um, uh, a food subscription service now where we buy food that isn't acceptable in, you know, supermarket attractiveness quality, things like that. And we're saving really significant amounts of money on our on our grocery bill. Also, um, obviously, you know, we, we have to limit what our children can be involved in. So, you know, where they might have had um, more extracurricular activities simply because the, the cost of that is becoming greater than, than what's affordable. We actually employ a budgeting service um, because that's an area that we, we just felt, you know, with three small children and two working parents and things like that, that was an area of investment that we decided to make. Alisa wants to know why interest rates seem to be the only tool being used to fight inflation. I would have thought that an organisation with the financial capacity and intelligence of the Reserve Bank had more in their arsenal than just interest rate hikes. I certainly haven't seen anything else. Dr Angela Jackson from Impact Economics says there aren't many options. The reality of inflation and combating inflation is there is no easy choices. There are no easy policy choices available to either the Reserve Bank or the government. What they're trying to manufacture is what we call a soft landing. So getting that inflation figure back down through slowing the economy, but not to the extent that we have a recession and very high levels of unemployment. That is a difficult thing to do. In a statement, the RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, has pointed out inflation makes life difficult for people and damages the functioning of the economy, saying high inflation would be costly to reduce later. He's also warned more rate hikes will be needed over the months ahead. Angela Jackson says the RBA's goal is clear. What we can see is the Reserve Bank is steadfast in its determination to bring inflation down and it will do what it needs to do to do that. Um, And so I can tell you that I think next month they're likely to move again. I think the data indicates that that's probably warranted. Um, After that, it really will depend what is happening in terms of inflation uh, and whether or not they are seeing the response that they want that gives them confidence that they have inflation under control. With variable mortgage rates climbing, borrowers are being encouraged to hunt around for a better deal. Richard Witten from the financial comparison site Finder says people should consider refinancing or check if their current lender can offer a better rate. And you might find they're actually offering a lower rate 
for new borrowers while keeping you on a higher rate. It happens all the time. And if you can see that there's a better deal there, you can just call your own lender and say, hey, can you put me on this lower rate? Most of the time, they just will because they want to keep your business. Chris Leishman is Professor of Property and Housing Economics at the University of South Australia. He says it will be toughest for more recent buyers. So particularly people who bought, perhaps paid a little bit too much in the boom that we saw 12 to 18 months ago, who took advantage of very, very low interest rates. So they have a simultaneous problem of, you know, they paid probably more than they could afford at today's interest rate levels. And also their mortgages are about to go into those much higher variable rates. The RBA has acknowledged some households are already struggling with rising mortgage repayments and the increase in the cost of living. That's Stephanie Smale reporting there. As borrowers contend with yet another rate hike, housing support services say renters are being forced to forego medication or rack up debt to cover their housing costs. Tenants Victoria says it's unable to keep up with demand for its service, responding to just 30% of incoming calls and emails, mostly from people facing significant rent increases. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. What do you do when food, petrol, medical costs and energy bills all go up, but your income stays the same? There's overwhelm and despair, panic, um, just this continual feeling of dread that this is my life now and and for always. Archie's a renter in Melbourne's northern suburbs. They have a medical condition that stops them from working, which means they receive the $936 a fortnight disability support pension. That's below the poverty line. It's a struggle. It's a daily struggle. Um, uh, I just received a overdue notice from my power company saying that I'm about $230 um, uh, in debt, uh, um, which I, I don't really know what to do with that. Like I can put it on a payment plan, but payment plans don't make me have more money. Without help from their parents, the 44-year-old wouldn't be able to pay rent. Housing insecurity is one of my biggest ongoing stresses. I can't even tell you how many times I've moved in the last five years. It's it's a lot. I can't count it on one hand. Um, I'm always concerned about rent increases or um, being asked to leave because, um, I don't know, for whatever um, ridiculous reason, the last place I was in, um, we were asked to leave at the end of our tenancy and found out that somebody else moved in a few months later, which we could have contested. But when I tried to contact the tenants union, we weren't able to get through to them. Tenants Victoria provides advice to people in private rentals and social housing. Right now, they can't keep up with demand for their service. We're doing the very best that we can. We don't have the capacity to respond Jennifer Beveridge is the CEO of Tenants Victoria. We're starting to collect some data on the number of people who we're able to respond to. We think that's around 30% and we provide direct services to about 10,000 people every year. So that gives you a bit of a sense of the scale of the number. Rents rose 10.2% in the year to January, according to real estate data firm CoreLogic. It says rent values have jumped 22.2% since September 2020, the largest rental upswing on record. The affordability part of renting is, in reality, not there for people anymore. They, they don't have the deposit to enter the housing market and they're struggling to pay 
their weekly rent. And yes, across the board, we have heard that rents are increasing about 10%. It, it is starting to climb up. But we are hearing from people day after day who are being given notices of rent increases that can be as high as 50% or even a, a doubling of their rent. Recent data from the Productivity Commission shows that 44% of people who receive Commonwealth rent assistance still experience rent stress, which means they spend more than 30% of their wage on rent. Jennifer Beveridge says Commonwealth rent assistance needs to be increased immediately. Joel Dignam from advocacy group Better Renting agrees and says there's also a desperate need for prices to be regulated. He wants state governments to enforce limits on rent. Anything we can do to get those costs down or stop them increasing is really important. He wants a commitment from the federal government to increase government payments like pensions and JobSeeker. We've heard from people talking to us about challenges they have, even around things like food, uh, whether they can afford medication. The effort to pay and increase rent on top of everything else, particularly on a low income, is leaving people really desperate. Speaking on Q&A on ABC TV last night, Assistant Treasurer Stephen Jones said Labor was committed to building 10,000 affordable homes over the next five years, but conceded he couldn't promise rents would decrease. No, we can't promise to keep rent down, but what we know is that unless we do the things um, that are contained within our housing, housing policy, the problems you describe are going to get worse. In a statement, a spokeswoman for Victoria's Department of Families, Fairness and Housing said recent reforms meant landlords can't raise rents more than once in a 12-month period. Meanwhile, in New South Wales, the Greens are planning to introduce legislation to freeze rents, limit rent hikes and end no-grounds evictions. That's Bridget Fitzgerald, our reporter there. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app and don't forget to Check out ABC News Daily with Sam Hawley each weekday morning. That's all from us. We'll be back tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. The death toll from the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that struck south-central Turkey, also known as Turkey, is rapidly rising as rescue workers race to save who they can. Today, Tim Costello, the former head of World Vision, on the unfolding humanitarian crisis. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.